Okay. Uh, well, good evening, everyone. Um, so, uh, as you probably know by now, we're busy with this series on which we call Christianity 101, where we go through all these essential doctrines or uh, truth claims of the Christian faith. And I think one way you can think of this is um, maybe the following question. What would you say if someone asked you what defines Christianity? What would you say? And so the series that we are busy with is basically an extended answer to that question. We're going through the things that defines Christianity. So that is what we are exploring. And I want to add that that is also, in a sense, what we are pursuing. That is what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity. The things that unites all Christians from different backgrounds uh, and different denominations. And so we, we already covered the fallenness or the, uh, um, the depravity of man. We looked at the unity and the triunity of God, uh, the church and the kingdom of God, and the incarnation. That is to say, the idea that the person of Jesus is uh, fully human and fully divine. And tonight I want us to explore the crucifixion of Jesus. I want us to answer the question, why did Jesus of Nazareth have to die on that terrible cross? And what exactly did his death accomplish? Now one disclaimer I need to put out there at this point is that we will be a little bit all over the place tonight. So instead of focusing on one single passage, um, as I usually like to do, I want to take a step back and look at uh, God's broader revelation and see what's the threads that we can sort of pull together as we take this uh, step backwards. And then to see, uh, to look at all the things that lead up to the person of Jesus and his work on the cross. Um, and so we'll look at that. But the disclaimer, don't forget that, is that we will be jumping around a little bit instead of focusing on one particular passage. But so back to the question, why did Jesus have to go through all that physical, emotional, and also deep existential suffering on a cross? I mean, after sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was forsaken and denied by his followers when he was arrested. He was spat upon. He was uh, brutally tortured. Um, he was innocently sentenced to death on a cross. And then he was later actually nailed to that cross, the most horrid instrument of torture and execution. And then finally on that cross he experienced God-forsakenness. And finally with the words, he, it is finished, he gave up his spirit into God's hands. But the question remains, why? Why did he have to go through that? Now as we pursue the answer to this question, I um, want us tonight to focus on basically three things. Um, so the first one is, what does it mean when we refer to Jesus as the Christ? Second one, what does it mean for him to be our final and our sufficient mediator between God and man? And then the last one, what does Jesus' work on the cross entail 
when we think of him as our prophet, as our priest, and our king. Those three, that's typically known as the three offices of Christ. And I know an office is a very formal word, but um, I'm going to, since I don't have a better word to use, I'll just stick with that. Um, so those are the, that's the three things that we will focus on. And as we go into more depth and detail in each of these facets, we will see that the short answer to the question is that as the Christ, Jesus is the final and the sufficient mediator between God and man and is therefore the only one who could die and pay an infinite price and accomplish an infinite victory for our sins and over evil. But for now, let's start with the first one. Uh, what does it mean when we refer to Jesus um, by the title, the Christ. Sorry, I just want to move this thing because I cannot see you guys over here and I'm pretty sure you guys cannot see me. Um, all right, now how many of us have truly thought about this title, the Christ, when we think about Jesus? And I think for many of us, we actually only treated many times as a surname. That's just Jesus' surname. Uh, we don't really pay much attention to it and to, to, to really do a study to go into more depth and detail. And therefore, the fact, however, is that it, uh, it was always a title which was applied to Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, um, the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah, uh, sorry, Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah, meaning the anointed one. And then, so to refer to Jesus as Christ was to assert in some way his significance as the divinely approved figure who acts as the agent of God. In other words, he carries with him the divine stamp of approval. Every word he uttered and every act he performed carries with it a divine stamp of approval. I mean, some passages in the New Testament which refer to Jesus by using the title Christ usually connects it to his death and resurrection. Um, the Apostle Paul, for example, writes in Romans 5 that Christ died for the ungodly. In Galatians 3, he writes that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And this verse in Galatians even emphasizes the fact that the manner in which Jesus died is, has some sort of significance to it. He hung from a tree, and everyone who hangs from a tree is cursed. And then when looking briefly at, at the Gospels, you can also come to the same conclusion. I mean, in Luke 23, the title of Christ is used um, to refer to Jesus and we read there, and they began to accuse him, saying, We find this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to, uh, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the King. And one should also note here that Christ is used together with the word, or, the, or also the title, King. And then also in Luke, it, he also accounts the words of one of the criminals who was crucified next to him. And he said to Jesus, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Now, this clearly ascribes supernatural abilities to the Christ, since the criminal expects Jesus to be able to save himself of the cross 
if he truly is the Christ. This is, humanly speaking, impossible. And not just to save himself, but also the two criminals hanging next to him. So whoever the Christ is, there was pretty high expectations of, of him. So when Jesus then also in Matthew 16 asks his disciples who the people say he is, and the apostle Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, an exclusivity is given to this title in the sense that Jesus is the Christ and no one else. He is the Christ, the definite article put in front there. And then, although there are Jewish political nuances and also certain Jewish expectations in the title of Christ or then the Hebrew version of the Messiah, the Apostle Peter has gone beyond this popular acclamation of Jesus as a prophet to the point of recognizing him as not just one uh, among many, not even like John the Baptist, the greatest of the prophets, but as the one climactic figure in whom God's purpose is finally being accomplished. And so in that sense, Peter here in his answer to Jesus' question has truly made some sort of breakthrough in, uh, in, in this way when we think about Jesus carrying the title as the Christ. Also in the book of Acts, the apostles used the title Christ as only for Jesus. They did not, I mean, in, in Acts 5, we, we read that the apostles did not stop teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And in Acts 17, the apostle Paul is in the synagogue explaining and demonstrating to the Jews that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And then he adds that this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now, of course, the New Testament cannot really be, uh, cannot really stand in, in isolation uh, when we think of Jesus as the Christ. I mean, in the Old Testament, there is so many traces of what we can call messianic longings that we can see there. I mean, the Davidic kingship, the, the kingship of David, uh, was always viewed as a hope for the future in ancient Israel. And then, if you read Lamentations, Habakkuk, there's mentions of the anointed all over the place. Micah and especially Micah 5 and Isaiah 9 prophesied the birth of the anointed one in Bethlehem. And then it's, it's further described, whoever this Messiah is who will be birthed in Bethlehem, he is further described as the eternal one, the mighty God himself. And then, of course, the Psalms expand on this. You can just read as far as Psalm 2, and then you'll see that uh, the psalmist talks about those who raise themselves up against the Lord and against His anointed one. Zechariah 9 prophesied that the Messiah is the King who is just and who is in possession of salvation. He will come lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And of course, this prophecy is fulfilled when Jesus indeed does ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, as described in Matthew 21. And then in his first sermon um, that he preached, Jesus reads a portion of Scripture from the prophet Isaiah. And we read there in Luke 4 that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight 
to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And after he read this portion of Scripture, he says this, Today this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's directly identifying himself with the Messianic figure whom the prophet Isaiah spoke about. And the implications is clear, and that is that the Messianic age is already realized in the person of Jesus. Now, of course, we can go on forever. If you compare Old Testament and New Testament, the Messiah, the Christ, you can go on forever like this. But if you haven't listened to a single word I've said up to now, then you can take this summary with you. Uh, the main idea is that from the beginning, the belief that Jesus is the Christ was the heart and the core of the Christian confession. And what this title basically entails is that Jesus, you could say, is the chosen one. He's the one that was chosen. Uh, he was eternally uh, in the Father's bosom, and from there the Father sent him when he took, flesh, he took on flesh and became a human being, and he sent him on this sacred mission to save humanity, which will, in some way, then find its climax in his crucifixion and resurrection. And so, that is the summary of this title, I, w I can think so. So, um, as the Christ, Jesus is our mediator who died for our sins. And remember that phrase, he died for our sins. Now, this theme of Jesus being the one and only Christ leads us then to the, the role of Jesus as the final and the sufficient mediator. Now, if you follow the narrative of the Old and the New Testament, the only conclusion you can come to is that Jesus as the Christ is the final and the sufficient mediator between God and man. No one else except Jesus was suitable for this role. Okay, so now we've covered the first point. We're moving on to the second one. Um, which is his role as mediator, and what does that mean? Now, when it comes to the role of a mediator, it is worth pointing out that whenever there is a mediator present, it assumes that there is a gap that needs to be bridged. Uh, it assumes that there is guilt that must be atoned for, that there is an, en 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 <laughs> sorry, an enmity that must end, and in some sense there is evil that needs to be conquered. And so the idea is that mankind has fallen into sin and we have become uh, slaves to evil and darkness. Every one of us are unable to reach God on our own. We are unable to save ourselves. We are unable to get ourselves out of this mess that we are in. And moreover, we are unable to conquer evil, sin, death, and our own flesh, uh, the three enemies of the soul. We cannot do that. If we read the Apostle Paul, I mean, he writes that we are all under sin. We are dead in trespasses and sin. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Jesus the Christ, as the final mediator between God and man, is a very suitable way of describing his work on the cross. On the cross, he was doing mediation. He was, doing it, uh, he was um, reconciling. He was atoning. He was 
reconciling God and man. And take note that in, in the same way as there have been messianic longings in uh, the Old Testament, there is one particular case as well in the Old Testament that where there is also a very real longing for a mediator. When we read, jo- read Job 9, he addresses God and he says the following, Now, just some background. We know the story of Job. He's going through tremendous suffering. I don't have time to unpack that, but he's in the midst of tremendous suffering. And then he says, Nor is there any mediator between us, speaking to God, who may lay his hand on both of us. This refers to a rescuer or a helper, an arbiter, an arbitrator whom whom Job wished could stand between himself and God. And this passage then has contributed to the New Testament way of thinking of a mediator. In some, in some sense, Job is grasping after any means to restore his relationship with God. And his sense of meaninglessness in the face of tremendous suffering is deepened by a feeling of God's absence in his life. And that is why his search for vindication is then essentially a search for God again to make himself known to him. And so this longing for a mediator that we observe in the book of Job is then more clearly defined in 1 Timothy 2.5 by the Apostle Paul, where Jesus Christ is established as the mediator between God and man. And that is the mediator whom Job was long- longing for. And Paul states, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The focus here, of course, is on Jesus Christ, identified as the mediator between God and man. And again, a mediator means something like one who stands in the middle, and then uh, as he stands in the middle, he reconciles two parties, or two, yes, he brings two parties together into harmony and unity. And because man, because of sin, man cannot really approach the one true and holy God on his own, It is God who takes the initiative and approaches man in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Now, although 1 Timothy 2 does not mention the divine nature of Jesus Christ as our mediator, but only refers to him as the man, in the very next chapter, Paul states that God was manifested in the flesh, again referring to the person of Jesus So although 1 Timothy 2.5 focuses on the humanity of Christ, it is in no way separate from his deity. Uh, Jesus' work of atonement was done in his human nature, since, and I think this is quite important, since that would be where the work of reconciliation and atonement must primarily occur, in his human nature, though never in separation from his deity. And this indicates that there is a very deep, theological significance to the incarnation, to this conviction that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And I want to spend a good deal of time on this conviction about the person of Jesus, that as our mediator, he is both God and man. Now, just before we get back to that, Paul's thought in 1 Timothy 2, 6, the very next verse, goes further to include the notion that Jesus Christ as the mediator gave himself as a ransom. His mediating work therefore takes us to his life and his death and his work through his death 
on the cross, which includes the payment of penalty that God's law, law demanded for the transgression of man's sin and also his victory over evil and death. But then again, we must maintain that if God the Son did not add to himself a human nature, if he did not add to his divine nature a human nature in the person of Jesus, humanity would never have known God the Father. In the incarnation, it is God who gives himself. It is God who gives himself in the person of Jesus Christ and ever remaining God, he takes on our genuine humanity so that we humans can apprehend the transcendence of God through that graspable humanity, something that we can actually relate to. And so the Son perfectly reveals the Father, but if He had no re real human nature, humanity would have no part in the salvation that He accomplished on the cross. So as a sinless human being, He achieved righteousness through His obedience and then sufficiently paid the penalty of sin uh, with His own blood on the cross. And so this atoning death of Christ was only effective for us as human beings because of Jesus who died for our sins, who was a fully and integrated human being. And of course, this theme is prevalent in the whole New Testament. Uh, Matthew writes that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. Paul writes, Christ has loved us and given himself as, and given himself for us. He also writes, Christ died for our sins. Jesus Christ, as God and man, lived a sinless life in perfect obedience, and then he gave himself as the perfect sacrifice for fallen humanity to achieve righteousness and also victory over uh, evil. And in this sense, Jesus is a sinless and perfect man. And in this sense as well, he is man the way God intended man to be. Now moving on from his human nature, we must also maintain that if Christ were not also fully God, his actions and his teachings would not have been true as God himself is pure and true. A mere man cannot overcome sin by living a perfect, righteous life on his own. To be sure, the mediator had to be human but we need a human whose payment for sin and victory over death is of infinite value. No mere human person can achieve that kind of payment or that kind of victory. And that is why Christ, as the agent of reconciliation between God and man, is fully God and fully man. Uh, I, I think here's a very good summary. So I'll summarize this second point with these words. And I'm not going to say at the moment, no, I'll just say who this is. This is John Calvin. And uh, he might have a bad rep these days, but I think the, he's spot on. Okay, this is what he says. For the same reason, it was also imperative that he who has become our redeemer, redeemer be true God and true man. It was his task to swallow up death. Who but the life itself could do this? It was his task to conquer sin. Who but very righteousness itself could do this? It was his task to rout the powers and of world and air. Who but a power higher than world and air could do this? Now, where does life or righteousness or lordship and authority of heaven lie but with God alone? Therefore, our most merciful God, when he willed 
that we be redeemed, made himself our redeemer in the person of his only begotten son. Because Christ is the mediator between God and man, he must be both God and man. As God, he can reach to God on our behalfs, and as man, he can reach to man. And now finally, okay, so that was the second point. Uh, and now finally, I want to end with the idea that Jesus is our final prophet, priest, and king. And I, I want to focus how those three offices of Jesus was realized on the cross. Okay, so we've spent some time on his title as the Christ, and that as the Christ, he on the cross is our final and sufficient mediator between God and man, who is fully God and man. And now we will zoom on on his work on the cross as our prophet, priest, and king. Now Christ is the name of him who God anointed, the anointed one. And he was anointed with the Holy Spirit to be prophet, priest, and king. And on these grounds, Christians through the centuries confessed that the true church of Jesus Christ had no other and needs no other prophet, priest, and king than the only mediator who is Jesus Christ. And so in his mediating role, or in this uh, drama of redemption that we see unfolding in the story of the Bible, we especially see that Jesus Christ has a threefold office. And as I said, I know it's a formal word, formal word, but if you look at the Old Testament, it was an office to be a, a prophet, a priest, or a king. You were anointed into that office, and that's why it was, it was pretty formal. And the idea here is that he does not just perform prophetic, priestly, and kingly activities, but is himself, in his whole person, prophet, priest, and king. He had to be a prophet to know and to disclose the truth of God. Uh, he had to be a priest to devote himself to God and in our place to offer himself up to God. And he had to be a king to govern, govern and protect us and to achieve a triumphant victory over, over sin, evil, and death. And so in his work, Jesus Christ stands for God before us as a prophet. That is what a prophet did, standing on behalf of God before the people. But... He stood um, for us in front of God as a priest. That was what a priest did. They stood in front of God on behalf of the people. And then for our benefit and towards our victory, who stood as our king. And, then, and so in this sense, one could say that as Jesus uh, we can say that as Jesus relates from his divinity to his humanity, he is a prophet. As he relates from his humanity to his divinity, he is a priest. And in his sovereign lordship over everything, including humanity, he is a king. And so, um, these offices of Jesus is very important, and I think it's got tremendous explanatory power, which is why I'm going to end with this. In fact, some have also tied this to re the reality of sin. So, since sin is a darkening of the mind in some sense, since it is the guilt of our consciences in another sense, and since it is an inherent corruption, a power in the individual, and moreover, by organizing itself in a, on a larger scale, scale, a power in the world, there is a threefold office to deal with these three aspects of sin. 
consisting of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness going together, and victory. All right. Now, I want us also, as I'm going to go into each of these offices, to use this time uh, to prepare our hearts and our minds for Holy Communion. Because later this evening, that is what also what we're going to be celebrating. We're going to be celebrating Holy Communion. And I think I want to use this as just to uh, contemplate the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. As a prophet, the work of Jesus as prophet refers to his acts as the authoritative representative of God, who reveals God and also his acts of salvation on earth. And this happens both, both through his words, but also through his deeds, what he did. And in the Old Testament, the prophet was a spokesman. He was an agent of revelation by which God, instead of speaking through his own voice directly from heaven, he put his words in the mouths of people so that they can speak on behalf of God. And so in some way, a prophet knew that when he was speaking, God was standing behind him. God was the authority behind him. And that's why many of them actually started their, um, their message with, Thus says the Lord. Now in Deuteronomy 18, we read that God will raise up a prophet. And this was an important passage to the Jews um, because it established a sense of anticipation of a great prophet who will come uh, in the fullness of time. And so the Apostle Peter in Acts later is the one who connects Jesus to that very verse in Deuteronomy 18 that he is the prophet whom Moses was talking about. The, the prophet who God will raise up. And then, in this way, he is the final and the ultimate prophet who came to bear witness to the truth and to proclaim the word of God. But more than that, also who, who is truth himself and who is the word of God himself. And, uh, and so, in this sense, he revealed the only saving faith. And the only saving faith or the only saving truth that he revealed is that the righteous servant of the Lord whom the prophet Isaiah referred to is Jesus Christ. I mean, we read in the prophet Isaiah, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Later, when you participate in the Holy Communion, use the time to think of Jesus as your ultimate and your final prophet. Think of him on the cross, and that as he hung there, going through that excruciating pain, he even there continued with his prophetic ministry or his prophetic work, in the words that he uttered. In some sense we can say that as the prophet he said, Thus says the Lord, it is finished. Like many prophets of old, he was rejected for one reason. He was speaking truth even when his life was threatened because of it. And may those words echo in our hearts and our minds as we contemplate the crucified Jesus on the cross. It is finished. 
His work on the cross is sufficient to deal with our sin, to deal with evil, and to conquer death. As the final and ultimate priest, Jesus did not come simply to speak to people, but also to sacrifice for them. He blotted out our guilt and made satisfaction for our sins. Like I said, while a prophet was facing the people on behalf of God, a king, uh, uh, sorry, a priest was facing God on behalf of the people. He was interceding for them, praying for them. But then a major part of the priest was to offer sacrifices. And in Hebrews 5, we see uh, a summary of the office of a priest, where we read, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Notice that a priest is appointed from among men for men, for things pertaining to God. And essential and, and so an essential characteristic of a priest is that he was a human. Because only a human can accurately represent humanity in front of God. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices were always considered to be a substitution. That is to say, uh, that there is an exchange of that which is sacrificed for the one who brings the sacrifice. And without a sacrifice, there can be no atonement for sin. Now there is a very significant chapter in the book of Leviticus which deserves our attention, I think, and that is Leviticus 16. And we read there about the famous Day of Atonement. Now Leviticus is a very strange book in general. I mean, uh, Ansi and I are working through it at the moment and it's very confusing. But when you reach Leviticus 16, um, you reach this very interesting chapter where you read that Aaron, the high priest, first had to sacrifice a bull to make atonement for himself and for his own household before he could make sacrifices for other people than himself. So only when his own sins was atoned for by a sacrifice could he kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. And consequently, he would then enter into the holy place. Now the Day of Atonement, uh, is an, we read there, is an everlasting statue in Israel where they have to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. If you read the first portion of Leviticus, it's just for particular sins, but then when you read, reach Leviticus 16, it's for, it's, that is atonement for all the sins. And then we read that the Day of Atonement was repeated annually. And then we read, if you turn to the, uh, to the book of Hebrews, this is actually placed into context, this whole sacrificial system of ancient Israel. And there one reads, especially in Hebrews 8, that the priests of the Old Testament only ministered what he calls a copy or a shadow of the heavenly things. And this explains the limitations of the ministry of the priests of the Old Testament, where they first had to bring an offering for themselves, and then they were able to offer for someone else. And we also read in Hebrews 7 
that Jesus Christ does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for people's, but, uh, but for, his, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. The priestly office of Jesus Christ is not a mere copy and a shadow, but the real person of Jesus. It's the real deal, one could say. Jesus without having to make a sacrifice for himself first, nor having to ever repeat it again, did not only as the high priest bring the sacrificed, sacrifice, but is at the very same time the sacrifice itself. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Now the reason why Jesus sacrificed himself is because it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. That was just a type. That was just a symbol. That was just a copy and a shadow of the real thing. And so that God only instituted that for the Israelites to let them reflect on the coming time when the Messiah would fulfill all of that and be the final and sufficient sacrifice, the final and sufficient priest who would sacrifice himself. And in that sense, he is the only self-sacrificing atoning towards God, substituting an actual guilt-removing high priest. No one else. So when participating in the Holy Communion, also then think of Jesus as your ultimate and final high priest. Inasmuch as he once for all offered up himself without blemish, and by a single sacrifice for all time perfected those who are sanctified, he is able for all time to save all those who draw near to him through God. In this intercession, his sacrifice will always continue to be relevant. Not a sacrifice detached from his person, a sacrifice once for all offered on earth as an expiation, that is, a sufficient payment for our sin. Also use the time to reflect on, hi on him, the priest on the cross. And now finally, Jesus as our king. When the birth of Jesus was announced, we already see that it's royal. Uh, we read in Luke 1, The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The office of king, of a king, was typically associated with the official appointment and activity uh, of Jesus on behalf of God to rule and protect His church and conquer over sin and evil. Now, in the Old Testament, the kings helped to establish and maintain the law of God in the country of Israel, in the Promised Land, and they would also lay siege to any threats um, that there were. And we also read then the following words in Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now this is again a reference to God's anointed one, but it explicitly states that he will bring forth justice. He will maintain justice. He will rule justly. In Psalm 89, 
the psalmist contemplates the anointing of David as king. And so King David introduced this royal golden age in Israel. However, we even read of his own failings and many failings of kings after him. And so after King David died, the people of Israel in some sense longed to see a restoration of the Davidic kingdom. I mean, Amos, in, in Amos 9, we read that God will restore Israel by raising up the tabernacle of David. He writes that on that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. One can say that a major part of the, uh, of the Old Testament messianic expectations was a king like David. And this is why the Gospels then provide us with a genealogy of Jesus. Because it wants to show us that he, is, he comes from the lineage of King David. And then in Psalm 110, we read this phrase, Sit at my right hand, which is this kingly and this royal reference. And God is making this promise that my servant, my anointed one, will be that king. And this is why the birth of Jesus is announced in such a royal and kingly manner. He is the king. But it's different from any other earthly kingdom. How? It is a kingdom in God's name, subject to God's will, des designed to direct all things to God's honor. It is not a kingship of violence and weapons. It is exercised and governed in a very different and superior way. It rules by God's word and God's spirit, by grace and truth, by justice and righteousness. And so the king's power is described to be used in the service of truth and self-sacrificial love. And then, very interesting, if we go to the New Testament, in John 18, when Pilate asked Jesus about his kingdom, he responded, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. The kingship of Jesus is of a whole different order. And this statement by Jesus does not mean that his kingdom is not in any way active in this world. It is just of such a nature that it cannot be effectively opposed by armed might. In his kingdom, Jesus not only gathers, protects, and rules his church, but through self-sacrificial love demonstrated on the cross, Jesus has disarmed, as the Apostle Paul writes, disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. As the king, he got rid of all the threats around him. So finally, when celebrating Holy Communion, think of Jesus as the king on the cross. The Apostle John, in Revelations 19, notes that the name that will be written for Jesus is King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. And even there, when he hung on that cross, dying a humiliating death, what seemed to the world like a, like a horrible defeat was in actual fact the greatest victory ever achieved and the only victory ever achieved over sin, death, and evil. So I invite you now to participate the Holy Communion, and to use this time to celebrate Jesus, celebrate the person of Jesus,
the Christ, our mediator between God and man, who is himself fully God and man. Celebrate Jesus the Christ, our prophet, our priest, and our king. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you that we can come to you as your children. We thank you that we can take the liberty to call upon your name. We thank you that we can know you because you revealed yourself finally and sufficiently in the face of a man, Jesus Christ, your son. Lord, we thank you above all that you gave yourself in him, that Jesus Christ is the biggest gift that you can possibly give us and that you have given him to us. Lord, we pray that we will follow him, that we will have the courage to do what he did. Lord, we thank you that we can know him, love him, be part of something bigger than ourselves because of him. We thank you that we can call him our Lord. We thank you that we can call him our Savior who died for our sins. And we thank you that we can call him our prophet, our priest, and our king. And this, we pray this in his wonderful and beautiful name. Amen. <laughs>